The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and open them again to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. We'll continue on in this chapter. I I must confess that uh, uh, every verse feels like it should be a 10-week series, and then when I look at the verse, every phrase feels like it should be its own sermon, and when I look at the words, I feel like maybe we should just be here for a few decades. But we're going to try to keep uh, pace and make sense. Uh, The passage we're going to look at this morning most theologians liken Romans or the New Testament to the Himalaya of theology, that mountain range. The Old Testament, obviously, is the foothills, which brings us to the understanding of the gospel, the New Testament revelation being like the Himalayas, and Romans being like Mount Everest. Well, if that's in any sense true, then today we're going to climb the summit. This is A passage that is special to so many, I have to tell you, that I hear over and over and on and on. It is Pastor Bob's favorite verse, and uh, it's just a blessing to be able to dive into this verse and the next. It's really going to be this week and next week, kind of a standalone, one-parter, combined, two-parter, and you'll understand that as we get going. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Now I'll read into verse 17. Paul says... For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. One of the curious and most tragic realities of history is when you look at the gospel and the Lord Jesus Christ, life, burial, death, resurrection, you understand the response that mankind had to him and then the response that the world had to these first followers. It's remarkable. One would think if God became a man, died in the place of and for sinners so they wouldn't have to go to hell and pay for their sins forever, the man would extend a thank you, would be grateful, would be overwhelmed by the gift. That's not what we see. That first generation of followers of Jesus Christ encountered unprecedented resistance to the message of the gospel. So far as our imaginations can take us, I want us to jump in a time machine. And before we dive into this passage and the verse, which we're going to look at next week, verse 17, we have to go back. I want you to to feel the humidity of those first um, days in the early church. I want you to understand the culture in which they lived, understand the opposition they faced, understand what it meant for them to claim the name of Christ, walk out into the supermarket, walk out into the streets, try to go into the synagogue, interact with their neighbors, and what opposition they faced. The first groups that these believers engaged heard the gospel, but they didn't receive it. And by and large, we can divide these groups, the first listeners to the gospel message, into three broad categories, um, ethnically, and two main categories, socially. Let me explain what I mean. 
The three broad categories are the Jews, the Romans, and the Greeks. Now, to study Greco-Roman history is quite remarkable. You remember that there was the, the Hellenization of Palestine, the, 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 the Greekization. What, what happened was Greek conquered Palestine. It became very Greek in its orientation, thought and engaged and understood the Greek culture. Then Rome conquers Greece and puts domineering uh, proconsuls over this culture. So you have Greek-thinking people with Roman leaders, and then that extends back up into Italy, and Greece, be- excuse me, Roman- Rome begins to-, to rule the world and export their understanding, their culture, their religion, their atheisms. Then, but those three categories, there are two subgroups that extend through all of them, the learned and the unlearned, the educated and the uneducated. Uh, we see those here in Romans 1 very clearly, the, the, the barbarians and the learned, the people who have had some kind of philosophical education and people who were just laborers. Let's talk about each of those groups for a second because I think it's fascinating. Think about the Jews who first heard the gospel message. They had been waiting, they had been longing, they had been singing as John was telling us last night, that, that O come, O come, Emmanuel, come, God with us, please, Messiah, please come. How would they know that the Messiah was here? How would the Messiah make himself known and they sought for, what does John 2 say? They sought for signs. Prove it. Very interesting interchange happens when Jesus is talking about this, and they, basically the question is posed to him, if you would just do more signs, they would believe. And what does he say? Even if, even if a man rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe it. And that's exactly what happened and how'd that work out for them. They had a sincere desire to see the Messiah. They wanted to see these signs, but I think it was more for curiosity with Jesus than anything else. They were asking for miraculous signs in order to test the Son of God and to test his apostles and to test his disciples out of their own puny and sin-infected minds. The gospel was to them a novelty. They had seen a series of would-be messiahs rise up, especially during the Maccabean era, only to be beaten down by the Romans. And this, Jesus, really? He's the Messiah? Do you know how his story ended? They would ask the Christians. Nowhere in their expectation set was the fact that the Messiah would come and be crucified under condemnation as a criminal in utter shame and disgrace. They wanted a powerful ruler, a ruler and a deliverer who would overthrow the Romans and give them their power back in Jerusalem. But Jesus was crucified. What kind of leader was he? Who ever heard of a crucified Messiah? Even if Jesus was the possible Messiah, isn't it fair to say that only failed Messiahs end up crucified on a cross, they might add? What the Romans did to murderers and thieves, they did to this would-be Messiah named Jesus from Nazareth. Even if a Jew of the first century Palestine uh, culture could stretch his mind around the idea and get his thought directed toward the fact that the Messiah died as a martyr or a hero for their plight and condition, they could not wrap their mind around the fact that he would die as a substitute for their sin because they placed their their hope and their faith in their own righteousness. They really thought if they could obey the law enough, then they could attain the righteousness of God and go to heaven, which is what Paul addresses, by the way, next week. 
He actually addresses it in the next verse. We're going to look at it next week in verse 17. We find the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel, not in works, not in effort, not in doing enough, trying harder, or being better. It wasn't simply the death of Jesus that was problematic to the Jews. It was the fact that he died on a cross. They knew Deuteronomy well. The method of execution that uh, Jesus endured aggravated the Jewish sensibilities. Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree they had read. Jesus hung on a tree. Crucifixion was horrific to the Jews. The cross was so offensive. The rabbis were actually instructed to not even look at a cross or a crucified person lest they become unclean and lose their ability to teach the people. But the offense of the cross was rooted in their utter misunderstanding of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is still in the scrolls. Isaiah 53 is still in the law and the prophets. With that background, you'll understand why the cross, why the gospel was so offensive to the Jews. You can understand why to be a Jewish convert would cause enormous shame on a human level. They had been ridiculing this idea, and then when someone converted, they had to fight shame. To the people of Jesus' day, the cross was a concrete and vivid reality. It was a common occurrence. It wasn't a novelty. They saw it day in and day out. It was the instrument of of capital punishment, the instrument of execution for Rome's worst enemies. It was a symbol of torture and death, and it awaited those of the worst of criminals. Not many years before Jesus, by the way, the disciples came to Caesarea Philippi. Remember uh, uh, when they came up to Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 16 and 17. Not many years before that in Caesarea Philippi, a hundred men had been crucified in that area. A century earlier, Alexandria, uh, Alexandria Joannis uh, had crucified 800 Jewish rebels at the same time in Jerusalem after a revolt that followed the death of Herod. Herod the Great, and then 2,000 Jews were crucified by Herod himself under the direction of the proconsul Varius. Crucifixions on a smaller scale were a common sight. They happened all the time along the side of the road. It's been estimated that perhaps some 30,000 crucifixions occurred during the Roman authority during the time of Jesus Christ alone. Capital punishment wasn't reserved for the family to come and watch of the victim. It was on the street corners. So to ask a Jew to glory or boast in the cross was something akin to asking a Jew in Nazi Germany to boast in the gas chamber. It's unthinkable, unconscionable. How could anyone even test our sensibilities to do that? Absolutely absurd on every human level. That was the Jews. Now we have the Romans. Whereas the cross was offensive to the Jews, the, the cross was, it was just embarrassing to the Romans. Paul doesn't explicitly speak of the Romans' perspective on the cross, but we know enough from the surrounding uh, studies of the culture to understand exactly what they thought and what the cultural understanding of crucifixion was. The Jews and the Greeks were under the Roman rule. Roman attitudes were pervasive. They were influential. The Romans used and perfected cruelty and crucifixion. They would actually have physicians teach soldiers how to execute criminals by crucifixion so that the maximum amount of pain and suffering were inflicted. 
It was a borrowed instrument, by the way, uh, from the Syrians, Assyrians. It wasn't enough for the Romans to kill a convict. They added indignity to the pain. Remember, the, the one who was crucified was, was stripped stark naked, hung on a tree, utter shame, utter embarrassment, typically flogged beforehand, a bloody mess by the time they made it to the cross. Jesus endured the flogging, which should have been enough, but he also took that punishment on the cross with him when he was crucified, held up to public view, enduring long, torturous hours. Sometimes um, the, the, the person on the cross could last upwards of two days. You remember what happened with, uh, with the thieves on Jesus' right and left. When he was crucified, the, you couldn't have someone crucified over on the Sabbath, and it, it being the night before the Sabbath. They would break the legs of the, um, the criminals so that they couldn't push themselves up, and they couldn't aspirate, they couldn't breathe, and they would die very quickly. Cicero uh, said that the very word cross should be removed not only from the person of the Roman citizen, but from his thoughts and eyes and ears. Josephus, who is a contemporary Jewish historian employed by the Romans, referred to the cross as, quote, the most wretched of all deaths. Think about the mythology of Greece and Rome. If one of their gods died, it was usually with a heroic death, and it added to the heroic mystique. It was something that they were, they were, they were proud of. They died with dignity, with honor, with hubris. For the Christians to claim, as they did, that the Savior of the world died not like a hero, but like a criminal, and as a criminal, under the sentence of a criminal, even worse, in exchange for a criminal's freedom, was way, way out and entirely outside the realm of reason. In fact, it was downright embarrassing. Now I'll get more specific to the Greeks. That was the Jews and the Romans. The Greeks prized philosophical wisdom above everything else. Wasn't practical. Uh, uh, this wasn't practical, skill-driven wisdom. They like an artisan. This was upper story, high-level philosophical reasoning, and their understanding of God and higher realities was was about impressive and eloquent arguments, syllogisms, analogies, speculations. So, for the Greeks, the idea that the creator of the world and the savior of the world will be crucified didn't even register. There's no way that could be true, they would say. Yet against that backdrop, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the cross. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The good news of God concerning his son is something for which I'm not only not ashamed of, it's something for which I am proud of, that I, that I glory in. 1 Corinthians 1 discusses this whole issue. We won't take the time to do that now, but it says, God's wisdom of the cross was perceived as foolishness to man. And so Paul, becoming sarcastic, divinely inspired, uh, inspired con uh, sarcasm, says, it's the foolishness of God. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. Because in the cross, in the gospel, God's power and wisdom are demonstrated. The scandal of the cross and the gospel would have been the worst news to the Jews, but it's what they needed. They needed a once-for-all sacrifice for their sins. The embarrassment of the cross should have been embraced by the Romans as the awesome humility of the majestic and gracious God, so unlike their pantheon. The foolishness of the cross should have been seen as wisdom to the Greeks. 
that exceeded their understanding of time and space. But why not? That's the question. Why not? I continually ask myself, what fool would say no to the gospel? What fool says eternity in hell, paying for my sins, glory in heaven, enjoying my Savior and my Creator, I choose this. What kind of fool puts a stiff arm in God's face and says, no, my way and my happiness at the expense of your way and your happiness, utterly believing that their good and time will never be served by glorying in God? What kind of fool does that? Well, we have to go back to these three groups of people and we understand it's the same now as it was then. They were judging God by wrong criteria. They were judging God by wrong expectations. They were understanding the gospel through the wrong lens. It was through the cross, though scandalous as it was, though embarrassing as it was, though foolish as it seemed, that God outsmarted the world by catering to our problem rather than our pride. God didn't want to give us some plan that we would say, look, isn't this interesting? So we said over and over in the previous weeks, no one would invent the gospel. No, no one invents a story like this to save man. The Greeks, on the other hand, could not accept the cross because it defied logic. How could a man be banished to death as a criminal on a cross be the savior of the world? So the cross was a stumbling block. The gospel was something that people were ashamed of. They just looked at that as a little Jewish offspring that would eventually die. Add to that the utter ridiculous nature, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that God raised Jesus from the dead? Come on, really? They had seen as many people die as you and I have. They had been to as many funerals or more than you and I have. They had never seen someone rise from the dead, and God raised Jesus from the dead. You would think that people would say, wow, amazing, unbelievable, I can't, this is wonderful. Instead, they gave it scorn. You know, courage is a fickle thing, isn't it? Especially about the gospel. Have you had courageous moments where you shared the gospel and you felt like you had the power of God coming out of your lips and you were so bold and it was a wonderful moment? Have you ever had that moment? Have you ever had the other moment where you know you should tell the person next to you about the gospel? You can feel your palms beginning to sweat. You want to say something, but then you don't. Why is that? Could it be that we are in some small measure and in some small way, I don't even want to say the word, ashamed of him and it, gospel? You know what the answer is? Yeah, it's exactly what happened. We've all experienced it. So did the people in this time. So by the time Paul writes Romans, 20 to 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Christianity was in serious crisis, and he needed to make a statement, and he wanted to make an example. Listen to this. Robert Haldane, the commentator, provides this very helpful summary. He says, by the pagans, it, the gospel, was branded as atheism. Remember, it was branded as atheism because they didn't believe that, the, the, that Caesar was God. So to not believe that Caesar was God was to not believe in God. So they were atheists. And by the Jews, it was abhorred as subverting the law and tending to licentiousness. 
while both the Jews and the Gentiles united in denouncing the Christians as disturbers of the peace. Isn't that interesting? Who in their pride and presumption separated themselves from the rest of mankind. Besides, a crucified Savior was to the one a stumbling block and to the other foolishness. This doctrine was everywhere spoken against. And the Christian fortitude of the apostle in acting on the avowal he here makes was truly manifested in the calmness with which, for the name of the Lord Jesus, he confronted personal danger, even death itself. His courage was not more conspicuous when he was ready not to be bound only but to die at Jerusalem than when he was enabled to enter Athens or Rome without being moved well, without being moved by the prospect of all that scorn and derision which in these great cities awaited him. As we've looked at in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit promised, promised Paul, everywhere you go, everywhere you go, they're going to make fun of you, they're going to beat you, they're going to put you in chains, they're going to torture you, and ultimately they will kill you. And yet Paul says, I eagerly, I eagerly, in verse 15, want to come to Rome and preach the gospel. How? Why? How? Why can that happen? Well, he answers that in Romans 1, 16, and 17. It formulates the thesis for the whole book. It formulates his personal uh, philosophy of ministry. We're going to work on this a little bit today and finish it next week. It's his thesis statement for his life and the book of Romans. It's his personal manifesto for life. I think I know more people who claim this verse as their life verse than probably any other verse that I know, and it is for good reason. So let's dive into it. Let's look at two personal effects of the gospel in this passage. Two personal effects of the gospel. Now, for the first one, we're going to have to look at the context. Number one, the gospel provokes boldness. The gospel provokes Boldness. We find this boldness, first of all, it's boldness that bolsters obligation to witness. That bolsters obligation to witness. Look back at verse 14 for a minute. Paul says, I am under obligation to both Greeks and to barbarians. That's the upper educated Greeks, the, the philosophizers. Not just philosophizers, they were philosophers, they were philosophizing. They were spinning their own philosophy day by day, testing it to see if it would catch and the wise and the foolish. Barbarians, wise, foolish, Greeks. I'm under obligation. One of the most important yet overlooked parts of the Bible in interpretation is careful attention to the grammar. Grammar means something. Grammar means everything. God did not utter one particle, one preposition, one part of speech that isn't perfectly inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's what we believe, right? Every single jot and tittle, every single word, it's important to look at the very first word of Romans 1.16. What is it? What's the first word of Romans 1.16? For. It's a subordinate clause. It depends on something that came before it. A lot of our favorite verses are like that. John 3.16, what's the first word? For. It's a subordinate clause. Ephesians 2.8.9. For. By grace you've been saved through faith. The grammar matters. So we have to come back and say... What is this the result of? This is the other side of an equals mark. What came before then, before this? He says, I'm not ashamed for, I'm not ashamed. It connects back to the statement of Paul's obligation we just read in verse 14. I'm under obligation. I'm under obligation, but I'm not ashamed. 
no matter the depth or duration of the stinging criticism of Paul, and it was nonstop for his message, for his preaching, his proclaiming the good news of Christ, he was proud to be associated with the gospel. Now, listen, this was not easy for him. You think you have it hard. We don't have it hard. Has anyone put a gun to your chest and said, don't believe the gospel or I'll kill you? That was the equivalent of what Paul experienced in every city he went. In fact, in in Lystra and Derby, they drug him out of the city and beat him so bad they thought they had killed him. Some think he did die and he went to the third heaven. Second Corinthians 1 could verify that, that view. Romans didn't leave someone as dead. It's like they, well, we hope he's gone. They beat him that badly. We don't have that kind of persecution. Yet Paul, in that context, says, I'm not ashamed. I'm proud of the gospel. Take me out, and I'll go see Jesus. Why? Because he understood his obligation as a warner and a watchman. Remember Ezekiel 3? Uh, Ezekiel has this incredible uh, metaphor that Paul references in Acts 20, and I think it's in mind here, no doubt. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17 says, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman over the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, God says, warn them from me. God says, warn them of the wrath to come, of judgment that's coming. Warn them of their opportunity to repent and come to me, and I'll be able to respond to their repentance. When I say to the wicked, God says, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out or warn them, this wicked uh, generation, that, that they may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, if you don't tell them, I'm holding you responsible. You are a preacher and a watchman, Ezekiel. Paul took that seriously. He was under obligation to be obedient to this call. He goes on, yet if you warn the wicked, and the wicked doesn't turn from his wickedness or from his wicked way, then he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered yourself. Don't ever think, don't ever listen to that sweet satanic whisper that you are only accountable for yourself before God. You are your brother's keeper. You will give an account. People need to hear the gospel. We are watchmen called to warn unless we're ashamed. It's good news bolstered his confidence, bolstered his boldness, his obligation to preach to everyone. Secondly, the gospel provoked uh, uh, his boldness uh, that, that sustained enthusiasm. He needed to have something that kept him going. The gospel provokes boldness in that sustains enthusiasm to witness. We, we understand that we need that kind of motivation. For this, we need to reach back to verse 15. For my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. This is incredible. Rome was the primary exporters of the persecutors of Christianity. Paul says, I want to go there. I want to set up that proverbial gospel pulpit three feet from the gate of hell. Eager, he says. How could Paul be eager to preach the strange news of a crucified Messiah when he could be ashamed and could be persecuted for it? How could he have no reluctance, no embarrassment, no shame? The truth of his good news compelled him with unmitigated enthusiasm. You could punch him in the face. He would smile and spit out 
his blood and say, let me tell you how you can be saved. Incredible. We know what it's like to be ashamed. We know what it's like to be embarrassed, to speak out for the truth of Jesus. Said positively, Paul not only says, I'm not ashamed, he says, I'm proud of the gospel. How many things are we proud of? How many things do we boast about? We boast about college football teams. We boast about our children. We boast about this and that, houses, cars, you name it. We can boast about it. Paul says, I, I want to boast in the gospel. I want to tell you what I'm proud to be associated with. One of the most frightening realities in the Bible is in Mark chapter 8, verse 38. Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, whoever's embarrassed, ashamed, listen, the son of man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with his holy angels. This isn't just evangelism options. We all understand what it's like to be embarrassed or ashamed in the moment. That's true of all of us. I'm sure it was true of Paul. What this is speaking of is someone who is so ashamed, they don't even want people to know that they're a Christian. I don't want to make a, a big deal. Religion is personal to everybody. I, I don't want to do that. I just want to be, keep my religion to myself. Jesus says, if you're ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you before God. That's terrifying. He told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord of me as prisoner. Join with me in suffering, he says. That's the consequence of boldness for the gospel. He tells him later in verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I know who I've believed in. I'm persuaded, convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that great. What had he entrusted to God? His soul. They may kill the body, but I will live yet again. When D.L. Moody says, he says, the day I, I die, they're going to print something in the paper and says, Mr. Moody has died. Don't you believe one word of it. At that moment, I will be more alive than I have ever lived before. Amen. 2 Timothy 2.16, the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. Notice that this, <laughs> this possibility of being ashamed doesn't just extend to the Lord and to the gospel. Have you ever been ashamed of other Christians? Standing in line at the subway, the guy's witnessing to somebody, your friend is witnessing to somebody, you're going, I wish I was somewhere else right now. This is awkward. Paul says, it's great when you're not ashamed of others who love the gospel. We have no shame. Think about the gospel and preaching it to ourselves because that's going to have a seismic effect on our proudness and pride in the gospel. First personal effect of the gospel is the gospel provokes boldness that bolsters the obligation to witness, that sustains enthusiasm to witness, number two. Second personal effect, the gospel inspires confidence. We're just going to get a little bit of this and come back next week to it. The gospel inspires confidence. Why? Paul provided two reasons for this confidence in the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the good news of God. Now, the good news of God, we have to go back in, in, to verse 1. I'm set apart for the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his son. The good news is about Jesus. I'm not ashamed of the good news of God about Jesus because, for 
It is God's power, the power of God for salvation. The Greek better reads, it's God's power that's demonstrated in this. You often have heard this, you know, well, the Greek word translated for power here is the word from which we get the word dynamite. It has such a negative connotation, but understand why they chose that Greek word, because it is massive and explosive in its effect. It has consequences. It's to be dealt with carefully. Don't miss this. This is, I want to tell you, I, I was just sitting in my study this week, and this thought so overwhelmed me. It was just, I didn't even know how to process. I didn't have a shelf in my mind to put this on. Think about this. The omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful God who created the world by just talking. That power of God is harnessed, is leashed, leveraged, displayed through a message about a son. Power of God blows through telling people the gospel. You say, what kind of power? It says God's personal power. Created the world, raises the dead. Seems pretty powerful to me. The salvation here, by the way, is past, present, and future. I mean... Can't you say, I have been saved? Can't you say that? I hope so. Can't you say, I'm being saved from your sin? And can't you say, one day in heaven, I will ultimately be saved? This has all three dimensions in that, justification, sanctification, and glorification. So the gospel inspires confidence because of its power. Amazing power. We're going to come back to this because that's revealed in the righteousness of God in verse 17. We'll come back to this next week. Also because of its scope, the the breadth of its impact. Because of its scope. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to who? Now here's what some people say. Uh, Just to the elect. Is that what it says? Uh, Just to the chosen. Is that what it says? It's the power of God for salvation to, what's the word? Everyone, anyone, but here's the condition. Here's the condition, here's the qualification. Who believes? We don't go around asking people, are you elect? Do you know the predestination handshake? Do you have God's name written on your head? Let's shave your head and see. How do we know someone is elect? Here's the big answer to that. Because they believe. I just get amused with people who just say, no, it's only man's belief. No, it's only God's sovereignty. God chooses, but the, the atonement, by the way, is limited in the Bible. Are you ready for this? The atonement is limited in the Bible by whoever believes. It's interesting. It's limited by faith, exegetically. It says, hey, it's the power of God for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, if you went back to verse 14, you'll notice the different and varied groups that Paul notes who are objects of the gospel. In fact, Greek, Roman, Jews, barbarians, learned, unlearned, everyone, no exceptions, no other means of salvation. God doesn't have the the smart people way to get saved and the dumb people way to get saved. He doesn't have the children's version and the adult version. There's only one way, and it's only the gospel. It's only the good news concerning his son. It's so clear. There are no exceptions 
Now, we have to ask this because people get tripped on this. Why the Jews first? Was he a racist? Was he a spiritual racist? Long ago, the Jews first, and we'll give the leftover gospel to the Gentiles. I think it's saved great, but I want the Jews to be saved. And some people have taken this as a priority. We have to do Jewish evangelism before we do anything else. If that's your heart, evangelize the Jews. i got a bunch of them in my neighborhood. Please. Over and over, especially in the book of Ephesians, Paul makes the point there is no discriminating target with the gospel. Then why does he say to the Jews first? Why the Jews first? It's only about their responsibility. It's only about their relevance. The gospel should have been relevant to the Jew first. It's the gospel to the Jew first. In other words, if anyone ought to believe and embrace the gospel, it's the Jew first. They've got the Torah, the the, the law, the Old Testament. Shouldn't they get it first? Shouldn't they understand it? When he goes to Acts chapter 17 and and evangelizes uh, pagans, notice he doesn't use much Old Testament scripture like he does in the synagogue. He says the Jew first. Like he's basically saying, come on, Jews. Really? Do you read Isaiah 53? Have you read Psalm 22? But let's be careful to not use this verse to say evangelizing evangelizing any one group is more spiritual than evangelizing the others. Basically, Paul said, if you're alive, you have a pulse, you'll stand still long enough, you better buckle up because you're going to get the gospel. He wanted to go to the Jews only. Remember that? We looked at it last week. God said, no, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. And still, this just cracks me up. God sends him to the Gentiles, but where's the first place he goes in every city? Synagogue. <laughs> He's like, okay, Lord. Hey, in the synagogue, let me tell you about Jesus. They kick him out, so he goes in the public square. I love that. Courage is a fickle thing. Now, we're going to leave some key nuggets in the last part of verse 16 for verse 17 next week because they go hand in glove to understand the linkage there. And verse 17, we're going to have a little bit of a history lesson. Verse 17 was Martin Luther's verse. It was the verse that finally cured his angst for thinking he was in trouble with God. Because he wrestled with righteousness. Are you ashamed? I think I told a group of, uh, maybe it was the college students last year, one of the things that is riveted in my memory worse than anything is I was, on a, I was going on a, a flight to South Africa. It was 12 hours from Los Angeles to um, London. I had seven hours in London and 12 hours um, down to Johannesburg. It was a brutal flight. And I, uh, I get on. I, I was hoping that I would have more than one seat. I mean, I'm a little guy. You give me three seats, that's a king-size bed. I had two seats beside me, and I, I, I was sure that um, the door was almost closed, and I was sure. And as soon as it, it was on the side with three, as soon as the door shut, I was going to get in the middle and just basically do this. And this little British couple comes in, they sit beside me, and they sat down, and I kid you not, as soon as they sat down, I heard, I felt, I sensed the Spirit of God say, you need to tell them the gospel. Now you're saying, oh, Rick, you turned charismatic. No, no, no. The devil didn't tell me to do that. And my flesh didn't tell me to do that. Uh, what other options are there? 
And doesn't he say that to everybody? So about everybody? So I'm like, okay, okay. My hands start sweating. Okay, I got gospel. And I know I got 12 hours with these guys. This things go south. This isn't going to be a fun ride. So I'm, I'm getting nervous, and I'm trying all these cute spiritual ways to ask about, you know, you ever go to church? No. And, you know, trying to get into the conversation. No way to get into the conversation. So finally, in desperation, I just simply said, are you believers? And the guy says, believers in what? All right. And I gave him like three minutes evangelist of the, of the decade. I mean, I was boom, 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 law, grace, Old Testament, New Testament, Messiah, Lamb of God, resurrection. I mean, I was boom, I did the whole thing. He says, sir, we're not interested in talking to you about religion. What do you say? Can I have that cookie? What's next? Um, it was an overnight flight, so we, the lights turned off, and you know everybody kind of settled down to, to sleep. And I, I just, I was so disappointed in myself. Now that sounds like some heroic story about, wow, you shared the gospel. No, it's just the opposite. It took me the better part of an hour and a half from the moment I had the urge to witness to them to get up the courage to say anything. I'm sweating and I'm nervous, and and I'm on a plane to go to Africa to preach. That makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? You know, you get off the plane and you would, you, they say, you have no credibility, get back on the plane, go back to America. I understand what it's like to be ashamed. So how do we cure our shame? How do we cure our shame? And the answer is in verse 17, which we'll do next week. So you still have no excuses. Be faithful this week. Let's pray. Father, I'm impacted by my own shame and the lack of shame in the Apostle Paul. Teach us in connecting this verse and the next, this week and next week, that to understand that your righteousness is demonstrated by your power in saving us from our sins, an alien righteousness that we never accomplished or deserved. Oh, Lord, teach us that to know the gospel is to be unashamed, and to be ashamed is to demonstrate to our own heart that we don't know the gospel well enough. Make us preachers of the gospel to our own hearts. To the Jews, to the Greeks, the barbarians, the wise, the unwise, anyone we encounter to tell them of the life-saving good news that Jesus saves. Pray this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>